Welcome. You're listening to Building the Backend, a podcast for data architects, where we will uncover what's working and what's not across the data landscape. I'm your host, Travis Lawrence. Join me on a journey to understand the best patterns, tools, and frameworks for implementing modern data architectures. Each week, I'll interview data leaders and architects like the Vice President of Engineering at LinkedIn or the founder of Data Kitchen and employees at Microsoft and Google and many other top companies. To start off the new year, I have put together a quick 60-second survey to help me better understand how I can best serve you. Go to buildingthebackend.com slash survey to complete it. And if you do, your next coffee is on me, aka I will email you a Starbucks gift card. If you're hearing this message, then the survey is still live, so act fast and help me improve the podcast. Without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hey, Data Nation. I'm really excited about this episode where we will be learning how to cultivate a strong data culture and the importance of a strong data product manager. To have this conversation, I have brought on Morali Bogavali, who started his career in consulting and then working for various startups and most recently at Tinder. Morali, welcome to the show. Thanks, Travis. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Jumping straight in, can you share a little bit more about your previous experience and kind of your professional journey so far? Uh, sure. I've been working at the intersection of data and product for almost um, 10 years now. didn't even realize that this was going to be carved out as a segment and uh, there's going to be a name to it called data product management. I feel fortunate enough to be working alongside data professionals. I learned a lot as a data PM. And I think there's only a few of us in, in this in this cohort, if you will. So I, I feel fortunate to be uh, sitting on the front lines and looking at how the data ecosystem is evolving. So I definitely got the front row seat for this. And what does it mean to be, I, I absolutely agree, it's definitely an evolving role. And what does it mean today to be like a data PM or a data product manager? <clears throat> yeah, traditional PMing, if you look at how product manager role kind of evolved in the last six, seven years, right? There was a product manager and there was no specialization within product management. But if you look at now, there's uh, growth PMs, there's data PMs, there's platform PMs, there's AI PMs, right? So I think the roles have uh, evolved within product management. And depending on what you bring to the table based on your skill set, you are being called one or the other. But yeah, to answer your question, what a data PM does and what does it mean to be a data PM is in general, a product manager typically uses data to deliver the outcomes. But for a data PM, data is the deliverable and it's also the outcome. I think that's a huge difference and you get to work with a lot of data. And yeah, I can go into the nuances uh, as we speak, but the one critical difference I see is delivering data as a product is what a data PM does. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. And do you need to have a technical background to be a kind of a data product manager or more knowledge in that space, I assume? Yeah, <clears throat> if you're starting out, I think a few things that you need to look out for is getting an understanding of how data flows in your organization is going to render well into uh, you succeeding as a data product product manager. But if you are somebody who are experienced and seasoned, people expect you to know the data ecosystem in general, how it's shaping out in the rest of the industry. And they also expect you to come in with some kind of knowledge around how different data systems work and what are the different processes around data, things like data quality, governance. If you're a seasoned PM um, in the data space, that basic knowledge around um, processes around data is expected. 
but I think uh, irrespective of uh, where you are in your uh, data PM journey, I think you gotta have one soft skill. I don't know if you if you call it soft skill, but uh, you need to have high emotional intelligence <laughs> because you're going to be working with uh, a lot of uh, experts in their own areas. Call it uh, deep learning or machine learning or a computer vision or people who are super familiar with uh, streaming platforms. You're going to be working with all those uh, professionals. And you as a data PM are probably going to be the least knowledgeable in the room. And uh, for you to work with all of them and still steer everybody uh, towards a common goal, I feel a data PM should have a lot of emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a wide range of stakeholders and expertise. They're out of kind of a, a normal data team. Absolutely. Exactly. So obviously one of the key kind of principles and that we're hearing more about is organizations being data driven, um, treating your data as an asset with the organizations you have worked with and your experience, what does it mean to be for an organization to be data driven or to treat data as a product? Yeah. So I think over the course of time, companies have realized or organizations have realized that, uh, like you said, data is an asset and it needs to be treated like a product because without treating data like a product, what would end up happening is data teams are treated like service oriented. Their main function is going to be keeping the lights on, but <clears throat> with, with the keeping the lights on function, there's not a lot of room for innovation, if you will, right? So I think um, the data as a product thinking mindset brings in looking at data as uh, a product. I mean, what I mean by that is whatever principles you're applying to uh, deliver your product, be it agile methodologies or be it continuous feedback loops, creative cycles or planning, those need to be brought into data as well. Without that, just treating, you'd not be able to treat data as a product. Historically, if you have seen data products take longer to build compared to a traditional feature on the product management equation. So... <clears throat> You got to be more patient as a data PM because you're going to be getting a lot of questions in terms of when we are going to provide value to the business. At the same time, you also need to ensure that your data teams are lined up for success, right? So <clears throat> there's a lot of trade-offs that you need to do in this role. And um, yeah, treating data as a product, like I said, is has evolved mm -hmm. over a period of time. And for you to treat data as a product, you need to ensure that data teams are not working in a uh, service-oriented mindset, looking at Jira tickets and just lo looking at FIFO first in, first out from a Jira ticket task perspective and looking more at, hey, what's the least common denominator that I can deliver to a bunch of consumers who have data needs and data requests? Oh. So... Yeah, putting that hat on is uh, what you got to do for, to deliver data as a product. Right. So it sounds like if you're an organization, there's some ways to determine are you, if you're currently treating data as a product is, do you have strategic work when you're building out your data platform and your data tools? Is that driving off of feedback from your customers or from your end users? And I, I mean, it's an obvious one. You have more of that role of a product data manager or a leader. You don't just have a self-organized data team um, that's not more holistically integrated into the larger business outcomes. Exactly. Yeah, yep. and that makes a lot of sense. Because there are a lot of data teams out there that are being, yeah, more of that keeping the lights on and not identifying that business value add. Exactly. What's the biggest hurdle your organizations face when building out data tools and platforms? 
Uh, yeah, I think uh, the biggest hurdle that I have seen along the years that I've been working in data product is bringing an alignment internal to the teams. What, what I mean by that is if you're a, let's say, growth PM or a consumer facing PM, it's easy to bring people along because there are clear metrics. So, for example, if you want to monetize with data, you can show the revenue numbers and you can say, I'm moving from X to Y person. Or if you want to improve member experience with data, you can show the DAOs and mouse or maybe uh, the stickiness or whatever, right? <clears throat> but for data initiatives, let's say likes of governance or quality or compliance, there's no clear metric. And it's almost always hard to bring people along on your thought process, on your OKRs, prioritization, on your road mapping, right? So <clears throat> sometimes as data PMs, we, get, we have to manufacture some of these metrics to showcase value to business. So this, this con, they continue, there's a continuous uh, uh, loop of doing trade-offs and the road to road to Nirvana is always riddled with these trade-offs. So I think bringing alignment within the team, which is bringing everybody along, for them to understand, you've got to show them the metrics. And for them to, for you to create metrics, you need to define metrics in some cases where there are no metrics, right? <clears throat> so let's say you have come to a uh, good conclusion and that you have to play both offense and defense in your data strategy. Offense being delivering um, value through monetization and growth, yep. right? Defense being, uh, meaning building scalable resilient systems, right? Data systems through governance or uh, compliance initiatives. So let's say you get there. The next challenge or the hurdle that you see is how do you build resilient systems? Do you want to build custom in-house or do you want to get something off the shelf from outside? So there's always this build versus buy decision. And for, for you to build on your own, you got to have resources and you got to have a lot of them. So only established companies have such resources who can spend time on uh, building those resilient systems. Let's say you're a, a startup or an early stage growth company. You might not have all the resources then you embark on buying something off the shelf and um, using it for your own. If you are going with the buy decision, the next hurdle that I see is there's a bunch of best of breed tools out there. There's no one tool which has, which has kind of laid this down from ingestion to insights. There's always going to be a hybrid set of oh, yeah. tools. And these are going to be these are need these need to be stitched together for you to deliver value. I think the next hurdle is uh, figuring that out. So. All of this tells you that it's it's a multi-year journey to create a data platform. So organizations need to be patient to reap benefits from these data platforms. And yeah, like I said, if you are a growth stage company, you need to de uh, deliver incremental value mm -hmm. to business. At the same time, you need to have this bigger picture at the back of your mind, which is de to deliver a data platform at the end of the day, which is your Nirvana state. So. Doing those trade-offs is difficult, and I, I feel organizations take a lot of time to understand how to prioritize with short-term versus long-term here. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah, patience is key when building out these large, complex data platforms. I think I was reading a statistic recently where 60% of organizations, you know, would not consider themselves to be to have data-driven culture. When you worked at Tinder. Did they have what you would consider a data-driven culture? Yeah, 
Yeah, so Tinder had a data-driven culture. I mean, what data-driven culture means is obviously, like I said, comes from treating data as a product. So that's probably your first step in building a data-driven culture. And people, when they talk about data-driven, I feel it's not just data-driven. It also needs to be data-informed. The reason I say that is if your data quality is not right, let's say, right, and you're only 60% there or 70% there, you might be looking at insights from data that is only 60% mm -hmm. there, and you might be taking decisions off of it. In my opinion, what data-informed means is uh, also knowing that this data is only 60% accurate, that gives a lot of leeway for who is for somebody who's taking action on this right. insight to uh, go one way or the other. So if they know it's if it's hundred percent accurate, then they can jump on it and they can uh, take a decision right away. If they know it's only sixty percent accurate, they might right. not. Right. So I think it's a combination of being data driven and data informed. And for that to happen, you need to build data literacy into your ecosystem. Right. Helping everybody understand what the data means. Where is it coming from? What is the quality of data? And how to understand the quality of data is also uh, part of the process for being uh, data. -driven. So is there one kind of key data dictionary or data catalog that captured all of that key metadata at Tinder? Exactly. Yeah. So <clears throat> we used data catalogs and data dictionaries to educate people. But what I've seen is, though you might have catalogs and dictionaries, without effective data governance in place, though you might have these data catalogs and dictionaries, they might become stale pretty soon. So you, for, for you to effectively provide discoverability or accessibility of data and keep your team always literate about data, they need to be they need to be a process and that process is what comes through let's say data governance processes so i've seen examples in my uh, past career where data governance was probably given an afterthought and because i was working at high growth stage companies they were always focusing on delivering value to business and some of the data governance initiatives always took a back seat with that what i've seen is they there's redundancies and duplicates in the data ecosystem. Right. I've used, I've always used data-driven, I'm sorry, event-driven analytics at uh, the companies that I've worked. And from that, what I've seen is because there's no effective governance when these teams were creating event-driven analytics, they were redundant events. They were duplicate events. So, I mean, it's a testament to the data engineering teams which are building these pipelines, which is carrying, which, which are carrying all of this data along. But at the end of the day, from a consumer side of the equation, what happens is the consumers are almost always uh, trying to figure out it is six or seven events which depict the same thing, which is the event that, that I need to go to to understand my user mm -hmm. journey. And that becomes a problem. And they almost always rely on data analysts to get those answers, right? right? So the data analyst function becomes a bottleneck. So if you are waiting for an answer from a data analyst community, and let's say I'm the product manager and I I'm waiting on an analyst and analyst has 10 other questions that he needs to address, the time that I have as a PM to take an act on, on that insight that I'm waiting might have passed by then. So from that perspective, governance also means uh, ensuring there are effective systems to stop duplicate data or redundant data from flowing into the system. So <clears throat> I think that's important as well from a data governance perspective. Yeah, no, some great points. And not only is data governance critical to building up that trusted data and kind of the confidence from 
the the users, it's also critical or from a compliance perspective when you start talking about GDPR and you know CCPA. And I think in your previous experience, you have worked on some data products, particularly around GDPR and CCPA. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. What are some of the things that make, from a governance perspective, are you on the lookout for when kind of meeting those compliance standards? GDPR, CCPA, all of these regulations are uh, new to the tech world, right? They're two, three years old, if you will. <laughs> if you look at um, finance or healthcare, these industries, they have established compliance teams because they're highly right. regulated and they have figured it out. But if you look at, uh, I mean, let, let's go back to 2018 when GDPR was in effect and all the tech companies, I mean, including Tinder and everybody else, were scrambling to um, get compliant. That's primarily because though, though they were putting in safe practices in place for data, they were not geared up for something like a regulation like GDPR, CCPA, where the data sharing with third parties needs to be regulated and needs to be governed. So I think from that perspective, like I said, everybody was scrambling and they had to hit the deadline for GDPR and CCPA. So I think from my conversations with uh, my peers ev everywhere, what I've seen is because they were time bound, everybody created short-term solutions to be compliant right. for sure, but they were not gearing up for uh, future. So after GDPR, there's a CCPA. <laughs> And it was again uh, a quick a quick turnaround that time that they had to look at and deliver in time for compliance. So I, I feel a regulation around the consumer data or member data is not going to stop. It's only going to get more stringent, right? Because as every state and every country passes its own laws, like, it's going to be. Yeah, I right? mean, yeah, it just gets more complex, and it's almost like you got to take the most stringent policies and just apply that throughout. In some cases, exactly. Yeah. So. I think you're right. I mean, going down this path, you cannot have an if-else statement saying if GDPR do this, if CCPA do that, if something else do this, right? So you probably need to create a uh, global privacy policy framework, which which kind of addresses not just the current regulations, but all the also the regulations that might come down the line. And but there's two ways to do it. Um, you take either the stringent, most stringent policy that is existing and apply that globally to all your data or go about it in a geographical fashion. I mean, there are pros and cons of doing both. And as organizations which operate in uh, multiple uh, regions and geographies, the organizations are better to uh, figure out whether they want to do data residency laws or they want to do a global privacy uh, policy framework. But pick one. But I, what I would advise everybody is build for the future because I, I don't see this stopping. No. And it's only going to be more, more regulations coming our way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely agree there. And I guess one of the, I think the CCPA regulation was just being able, if you're a consumer or a customer of an organization, if they reach out to you, you have to identify all the information they have on you and then remove it from your systems permanently. Even that seems like such a simple task, but if you're a large organization, that can be pretty difficult when you have data duplicated in many different systems and all these different copies. Are there other examples that you find organizations may be difficult to meet some of those regulations that um, may seem simple? 
Yeah. So, <clears throat> I mean, one was do not delete my information. That was one requirement. And the second requirement was do not sell my information or do not share my information. Without CCPA, brands were probably sharing data with third party for, let's say, uh, campaign management or CRM or attribution or whatnot. They were sharing data with third parties to, to do any of those uh, uh, functions. And they never had a catalog of where the data was flowing. Right. So now I think every time you onboard a new vendor or new tool into your ecosystem, you got to do additional due diligence on um, where is the data going to reside? Is it going to, are we sending PII to this vendor or to this tool? And uh, what do they do with it? Can we send a delete signal to them? So if, if we send a delete signal to them as a, uh, a data process, will they be able to accommodate my signal? Because I'm the controller and they're the process. So <clears throat> all of these additional nuances came into the equation with, with compliance, right? So again, the Nirvana state here is automating all of this if we mm -hmm. could, but automating this is going to be a huge step for any, any company, right? So again, this is, again, this is, this falls into the playing defense with data equation, right? So you as a data PM might want to build an automated um, process to, uh, to deliver compliance in your organization, but the ROI on that, the metric that you want to showcase to your business to bring this as an initiative to the table and prioritize is something you need to work on. If you wanna, if you wanna solve for this for future and ensure that you're not scrambling every time there's a new regulation that is coming. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, and I know organizations that you're exactly right. Kind of when this first came out, they were scrambling, and you know they they almost created more manual processes to like go identify, you know, like query these ten different systems and you know manually delete the associated data. Like you know, obviously there's some scripts involved, but it wasn't a fully automated process. But yeah. Wrapping up, what's been your biggest failure in the data space? I'd be lying if I said there's only one big <laughs> failure. There's been a bunch. And I definitely, I, I mean, though I might come across uh, saying, show, showcasing that I figured out everything, I haven't figured it out everything. And it was uh, a series of missteps that led to me being here and talking to you all. And I, I definitely do have an imposter syndrome when I was new into the uh, big data world. They were all these uh, buzzwords that, that were being thrown around and I didn't know what they meant. I might have been doing them all the time, but I didn't know they were called that. So <clears throat> I feel imposter syndrome is common <laughs> in the data world. What are you? In, in terms of failures, I was caught on with these buzzwords early on in my career. And I, I tried to drink the Kool-Aid from some of these processes, frameworks, vendors, and I took what they were offering back to my teams only to realize that it is not even a problem that we are trying to solve. <laughs> Don't just go by the hype. Start from uh, the ground up, which is trying to understand your problem space first, and uh, then go and try to find solutions. First, you need to collect all your problems. Then you need to understand the root cause and then try to solve the root cause. That's the way you go about it, not the other way around where you're going to a webinar or a, or a conference and uh, bringing those buzzwords or tools back to your team, asking them to implement it. So I have made those mistakes. Please don't do those. Yeah, no, those are great. I agree on both of those. I definitely have imposter syndrome and uh, still feel like I don't know much in the data space because it's constantly changing. There's a new term every week. It's hard to keep up. Exactly. But, uh, yeah. For the listeners <laughs> listening, you are not alone. We all have that. Where do you see data products hitting over the next two to five years from now? Yeah. So 
I think overall, like we said, the data ecosystem has evolved. And I think we have tools and processes from ingestion to insights across all the way for the entire data pipeline. Now, with treating data as a product, I think we need to put some additional focus on creating some of those, bringing some of what we have learned from, let's say, the DevOps world, like CI, CD, uh, continuous integration and continuous delivery practices into delivering data as well. So I think there's going to be some of our data product thinking has evolved, not just at my previous company, but across the board. The next focus is probably going to be more on data ops, because for you to deliver data as a product, you need to have data ops around it. So I, I see a bunch of companies already operating that space. So Godspeed, good luck to them. And uh, the next area that I see is observability. The, the reason I say observability is uh, the kind of alerts and monitors, monitoring systems that we put are piecemeal. They're not coordinated across the data pipeline. Yep, no, completely agree. Definitely had some previous episodes kind of focusing on more of the data observability aspect, but it's definitely, I think, a lot of, it's a challenge that a lot of data teams face, but yeah, we're quickly trying to resolve that. Do you have a favorite data book? or um, resource that you'd recommend to the listeners? Uh, yeah, I'm a big podcast listener because I feel I get more knowledge in a summarized fashion rather than reading books or articles. Yeah. So I, I follow the Data Engineering yeah. Podcast by Tobias Macy. I think everybody knows. Yeah. And I also look at the data landscape that Matt Turk publishes yep. every year. He also has a Mad Index, which has been a good source of information for me. And also he has a podcast for, from Fusmark Capital. These are the two that I am a regular visitor. But one thing I would advise on anybody listening to podcasts and trying to take a lot in from various uh, articles and publishings, if you will, there's so much to look out there. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of information out there. So I would say boil down to the best four or five of sources of info that you want to get your intake from and focus on those. Because if you go everywhere, it's going to be a plethora of knowledge and you would not, you would lose, lose focus easily. So I boil down to three or four, the ones that I've described. So please do something similar if you can. If listeners want to connect with you afterwards. Yeah. So I'm active on LinkedIn and I'm not active on uh, Twitter, but I keep following Twitter. Uh, my handle is mboga. You can reach out to me either on LinkedIn or Twitter. Awesome. Well, thanks Marley for coming on the show. I really enjoyed this conversation and I'm sure our listeners will too. So thank you. Thanks a lot, Travis. Take care. Thanks for listening to Building the Backend. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. If you want to receive the latest data news in your inbox, join the newsletter at buildingthebackend.com. See you next time, Data Nation.